This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to The Brink, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Elizabeth Holmes had a killer idea that would disrupt the healthcare industry. It was a technology that would turn complicated medical tests into a blood-simple procedure. She gave countless presentations and interviews about the device and the business. Magazines like Forbes and Fortune fawned over her. There was just one little pinprick of a problem. The medical device she had built her business around didn't work. This is Theranos on the Brink. So, uh, as Ariel mentioned, oh, oh, by the way, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Ariel. Glad, glad we got that out of the don't way. Don't want to get them confused. Uh, first of all, I'm so glad that you said Theranos because until I've watched the documentary about this company, I called it Theranos. Uh, or maybe I, even Theranos. I was calling it Theranos because the name comes from the words therapy and diagnosis. Yeah. So it's sort of Theranos. Yeah. yeah it's Th- a little, Thanos. Thanos, snap of the finger, and oh, wait, spoiler alert. So, hey, spoiler alert, there's a Marvel podcast coming. But yeah, we're going to talk about the startup company because this was something that had a real roller coaster of a ride. It did. It seemed so amazing and honestly too good to be true. Right. And and just as they say, if something seems too good to be true, it It probably probably is. is. And this is one of those cases, at least that's the appearance of it. I guess we have to use a lot of words like allegedly when we talk about (laughs) Theranos. But um, we should also acknowledge right at the very top of this podcast, we recognize there is a plethora of material. Boy, uh, howdy. About Theranos. Uh, from the articles that busted open the entire scandal from the Wall Street Journal and others, 
up to more recent uh, examples, like uh, John Carreyou, um, he was the guy who wrote the Wall Street Journal articles that were the expose initially. Mm-hmm. He also wrote a full book about this called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in Silicon Valley Startup. And then you've got, you've got other uh, introductions recently as well, ABC has a six-part podcast series, and that's called The Dropout that really dives into it. And then there's the HBO documentary, uh, The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. This is just a small selection of the various types of media out there covering this story. So we wanted to give a shout out to all of them. Yes. Uh, So we're going to talk about what Theranos is and who Elizabeth Holmes is and what lessons we can take away from this whole mess of a story. But we are going to kind of avoid some of the other elements of the story. So, for example, there's been a lot of attention about Elizabeth Holmes's personality, her mm-hmm. her the way her demeanor, the way she presents herself. And it's certainly always in. Yeah, but that's not going to be the focus of this <laughs> yeah. episode. We're really going to focus on the business side of it simply because we know there are all these other articles and podcasts and and documentaries that are about it. So, This is sort of our take on the story. And this, by the way, was a listener suggestion. Yeah, uh, S.T. Chimisoro gave it to us. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name. He requested that we cover this, and so thank you. Yeah, so let's let's start with the founder of the company. That was the focus of many stories throughout the tumultuous but short Mm -hmm. history of Theranos. Uh, That would be the founder, Elizabeth Holmes, And part of the reason why it was such a remarkable story is that she was only 19 years old when she founded the company. That that seems too young. It seems pretty young. (laughs) Uh, It it says a lot about her ambition, and Mm -hmm. I don't mean that in a bad way. I think ambition is something absolutely necessary if you're an entrepreneur. Certainly. Uh, she, She might have gotten to a point where that ambition was fueling things that perhaps were directing her down the wrong path, but we'll get there. So she was born February 3rd, 1984, Washington, D.C. Both of her parents worked government jobs. Um, She moved around a little bit. She grew up in D.C. She also spent time in Houston, Texas, and she spent some time in China as well. Uh, She attended high school, graduated high school, enrolled in Stanford University, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. Stanford Mm -hmm. is known for kind of incubating future tech entrepreneurs. In fact, there's probably uh, an incredibly exhaustive list of uh, of Stanford former students who didn't even graduate mm-hmm. who went on to work at companies like Google, Microsoft. Yeah, and, yeah. But she was specifically studying chemical and electrical engineering. Yes. You also have in our notes here that when she was in high school, she was learning Mandarin. Mm-hmm. So she started studying it, and then she wanted to enroll in college while she was in high school to take Mandarin classes, according to some reports that I read. Mm -hmm. And I think Stanford just kept turning her down and saying, nope, nope, we don't take high school students. And she eventually wore them down to accept her into Mandarin courses early. And I I just think it's important to mention uh, if it is true, because it just shows how tenacious she is. You know who she met while she was taking Mandarin? Who? Sonny Balwani who will play an important part later in our episode. Uh, he would become the future president and COO of Theranos. But we'll talk more about him a little bit later. So then uh, while she's attending Stanford, uh, when she would normally go on summer break, the ambitious Elizabeth Holmes, instead uh, of you know taking it easy and 
taking lots of selfies while going to the beach. Mm -hmm. Stuff she says she never does. Yeah, she decided instead to take a job working at the Genome Institute of Singapore. And there, the institute was working on a technology, a microchip, that could detect whether or not the SARS virus was present in a blood sample. And this is what gave her her idea, right? Yeah, she was thinking, well, hey, wait a minute. We can miniaturize various uh, medical diagnostic tools and put them into different form factors that could transform medicine. The other thing that was kind of fueling this is one of the things people in Silicon Valley love to talk about is disruption. Mm -hmm. This idea that technology can really shake up the way we do things and make it more efficient, less expensive, make it more accessible. And sometimes it can. Sometimes it can. And, you know, there are a lot of different disruptive businesses out there. We've talked about some. So like ride-sharing and uh, Airbnb, you would call those disruptive businesses in their various industries. Well, in the clinical diagnostic world in the United States, there are two companies that dominate diagnostic testing. Yeah, Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp. I've I've been to both, actually. Yeah, and uh, if you're getting lab work done in Mm -hmm. the U.S., there are typically three ways it could go. It could go to one of those two labs. So technically, those are the two ways right there. It's either going to Quest or it's going to LabCorp. Or some hospitals have their own clinical testing facilities, but there it's way more expensive. It is. It is. And LabCorp and Quest are not super cheap. No. they. I mean, it's a duopoly. Yeah. You have two companies that dominate this, so they can kind of demand whatever price the market will bear. And because of insurance and other issues, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into this. But also they're dealing with a ton of regulations, so they really have to make sure that they're meeting a bunch of requirements. Which is expensive. Yes. And that is another important point, right? Because these are life or death sorts of tests you're doing in some cases, right? You might be detecting... You might be on the lookout for something that could dramatically impact the uh, the welfare of a patient. If you catch something early and you can treat it before it becomes serious, that's a big deal. So it is expensive for valid reasons as well as the fact that there's a duopoly. So we don't mean to suggest that they're you know extorting patients necessarily, but the perception was, there's opportunity there, right? Like yeah. if you can create an alternative, you can undercut the competition and increase accessibility, make a huge profit, and potentially help lots of people. I mean, yeah, people don't like getting their blood drawn. You know, it's needles. Sometimes you get woozy. And this would eliminate both of those. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, the the idea she would come up with, if it worked, would mean that you would only need a pinprick of blood Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have to have like a vial or vials of blood drawn from, you know, yeah. your arm or something. Uh, Theranos' original idea was not necessarily blood testing. Uh, but when when Elizabeth Holmes talks about it, she she cites her and her family's fear of needles and fear of blood. And uh, it's statistics that may or may not be true about how many people refuse to go get blood tests because they dislike needles. Yeah. So that was one of many pitch points mm-hmm. that she would go to when she was talking about her her idea. Now, her initial idea was not quite as grand as what Theranos would be centered on later. Uh, but the idea that you would be able to run an entire battery of tests off a very small sample of blood. Not only do that, but to do it in an automated way in a device that is small enough to 
potentially fit in the average person's home. Mm-hmm. You could theoretically have one of these devices at your house. If not at your house, certainly at like a pharmacy that was in easy driving distance of your home. So the idea was that we could increase this accessibility to diagnostics and decrease the cost of running it and people would be able to take advantage of it like crazy. That's a brilliant idea. It's a wonderful idea. Very compelling. Here's the problem. Just because an idea sounds great doesn't mean it's possible. I mean, it doesn't mean it's impossible. Yeah, but the problem was that she didn't know whether or not she could achieve this. She assumed she would be able to with enough time and enough funding. Mm -hmm. So that's part of our cautionary tale, though, is this idea that you can hear an idea that's very compelling, but you have to ask yourself the question, and, and maybe you don't have the answer. Maybe you have to seek out other people to try and get this answer, but how realistic is this goal? Yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem like the end goal of Theranos was very realistic. Technology may, in fact, look back at her idea someday and say, you know what? We can make this happen. Or it may say, you know what? Uh, that's just too ambitious. We can do something similar, but maybe it takes drawing a whole vial of blood. Or yeah. maybe it means having a, a few different machines, each of which is dedicated to running certain tests, but not others, rather than having a machine that could do Run 200. everything. Yeah. So while she's at Stanford, she seeks out the help of someone there who had a lot of experience helping people you know, students who wanted to monetize their ideas and 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 put their ideas into reality. That person was Dr. Phyllis Gardner. Uh, she's a professor of medicine. She's also served on the boards of several companies. She started a couple of her own. Uh, she's one of the people interviewed in the HBO documentary. And she had been in Silicon Valley since the 80s. So she had essentially been there since Silicon Valley had Become so, yeah. yeah, from the earliest days. And she said in The Inventor, that's the documentary on HBO, that Holmes came to her a couple of times, maybe as many as three, mm-hmm. and asked her for some advice about this idea she had. The idea was a more modest idea. It was a, a wearable patch that mm-hmm. would have sensors in it, and the sensors would, in theory, be able to detect if you had an infection at the site of the patch and then dispense antibiotics at the site so that it would be sort of a almost a medicine-on-demand point of contact sort of thing. I mean, it, it seems kind of like a new spin on an insulin pump. Yeah, something similar to that. And there are a lot of people who have talked about these kind of ideas, this idea of having a patch that could dispense medicine over time mm-hmm. and uh, at a specific point of contact so that so that you're not wasting time getting like an injection at one site in order to treat an infection that's at a totally different site. But, but my brain, because my brain oftentimes will look at a, a problem and say, what are the hurdles yeah. before I look at the solutions? Obviously, that's a really good idea. And in my brain, I'm like, well, if you have gout in your foot, this patch isn't going to be able to determine that if it's only determining at the site. So one, it's a very limited scope as to what it can actually determine. Right, sure. Like you have to put it at the right spot. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, but I that is what my brain initially thinks and also if it's supposed to deliver antibiotics, aren't those supposed to be kept at cooler temperatures? Yeah, usually. I would think that the effectiveness would would not be the potency would not be very high. It wouldn't be very high. It wouldn't work as well because you're basically keeping antibiotics on your skin. 
which is certainly not a cool place most of the time. Yeah, and even with like a, a even with like micro needles to inject it, uh, one of the things Dr. Gardner said was, it's not so much the engineering side of it that she questioned; it was the actual medical efficacy, saying. Mm-hmm that antibiotics tend to work in high concentrations. They don't work so well in low concentrations. They would not be a very effective treatment for infections with the small amount that you would be able to fit in this sort of device. This is the amount needed is a frequent problem with Elizabeth Holmes' journey. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. Sometimes amount needed of blood, amount, amount needed, needed of medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what Dr. Gardner was saying was, I'm not questioning that the technology you've designed wouldn't work in the sense that it would be able to detect something and be able to inject something. I'm questioning whether it would work from a medical standpoint. Like, yes, it's doing all the things it's supposed to do, but that's not enough to actually treat the the problem. Now, Holmes went ahead and applied for a patent, and she got it. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing about patents. You just have to have a convincing case that the technology you are proposing is, one, novel. It's not a copy of some pre-existing technology. Yeah. It's not obvious. It has to be something that wouldn't just be obvious to the casual person. And it has to—there has to be a reasonable assumption that it would work in the sense of— it does what it's supposed to do mechanically or electronically. Yeah, but a lot of patents never make it to market because yeah. as much as they might work, they end up not. So anyway, that was very encouraging to Holmes. And she kept going to Dr. Gardner who said, listen, I can't help you. Uh, in the documentary, she expresses like she got frustrated because she just I felt Holmes wasn't it. listening. I believe it. So she goes and introduces Holmes to another advisor named Channing Robertson. And he not only thought Holmes was brilliant, he would actually end up joining as an advisor to the board of her company a little bit later. Yeah, but then she does something that just boggles my mind. She drops out of Stanford to pursue this this goal Yeah, when she has moderate engineering knowledge and experience Mm -hmm. and little to no medical knowledge or experience. Right. And and the one person who had a great deal of medical knowledge and experience was telling her this, Don't do this. Yeah, this doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, but her parents are very supportive. They let her take her tuition money and use it to establish and get funding. Okay. And here's where we have another big cautionary tale. So many cautionary so, tales. So the first one is just just, you know, if a story sounds super awesome and you want to believe in it, you need to apply extra critical thinking to mm-hmm. that. It's not saying that the idea is necessarily bad, but if it's appealing to those very basic foundational natures of humans, then you've got to take a critical eye to it. Yeah, it's real easy to buy into something sounding so positive. Yeah, and investors loved Holmes's idea and her approach because she came across and still does as very sincere and very passionate and very focused on this goal of creating this device that can improve people's lives by giving them better access to medical information about their own bodies. I mean, we all want that, especially in today's insurance industry where medical care is so expensive. It's something I can't imagine most people shunning. Yeah, and then on top of that, if you're an investor, you're thinking, if this works— I want to be in on the ground floor. I'm going to be making some money, money, money. Yeah. So 
it was a very effective sales pitch early on. And those incentives really encouraged investors to jump in. And they sort of either didn't spend any real thought being critical of the idea and finding out more or they just didn't care because they, they they just saw the potential of making a lot of money. It's a habit in Silicon Valley with these with these unicorn companies to just take a lot on faith. Yeah, and unicorns for those who may have forgotten these are we use these to describe startups that quickly arrive at a billion dollar valuation or greater. And this was I mean this was early on this was before the term unicorn really became. But it is well referred known. to as a unicorn. Yeah, company. yeah. Oh, certainly it it definitely qualifies although. At the time, no one was really calling them unicorns because this was 2003 when this this uh, company was first being founded. But investors were starting to get interested, and they started to to put money behind it, really wanting to see this come true. Yeah. But then we learned that just because you want something to be true doesn't mean it will come true. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. All right, so in 2003, Holmes, mm-hmm. 19, mm-hmm. as we said, formed her company. At first, it was named Real-Time Cures, yep. which is a lot easier to say <laughs> and pronounce than Theranos. Which, but, but I'd say Theranos is like, that's very Silicon Valley. It is. Again, it comes from the combination of therapy and diagnosis, which, you know, smart. I am still going to probably accidentally call it uh, Theranos. Theranos, yeah. And she turned to her family connections to raise money. Mm-hmm. And within a year, by the end of 2004, she had raised $6 million. Yeah, which again, you know, she's 20-ish at that point. Mm-hmm. That's very impressive for a 
20-year-old college dropout who doesn't really have the the knowledge the knowledge behind her to achieve what she wants like she had seen the microchip she had worked on microchips that were specifically meant to detect SARS i think you could argue that that was an inspiration and that gave her the leap to think well if we can do that with miniaturized technology for one thing we could do it for lots of stuff certainly and and there is something to be said about the fact that sometimes if you have a good idea and you've got the drive but not the knowledge you can surround yourself with people who do and that's exactly what she was trying to do she was trying to build out a company and hire people who were experts at least initially to genuinely try and build this thing yeah but it, it really it really kind of skipped that step of other than her advisor is this possible yeah so she wants to make this cartridge-based machine, this is after the patch idea, that would analyze blood samples that were being used in clinical tests for medications in order to detect potential side effects of medicines. Mm -hmm. So this would be before you would actually give it into like an actual human patient. You know, you take some blood samples, you you, uh, add the medication to whatever blood samples, you look for any reactions. And she wanted to make a device that would measure that sort of stuff, analyze these kind of things with the goal of eventually licensing out that technology to pharmaceutical companies. So companies that are making drugs could buy one of these things and then do this as part of the pathway to clinical trials. And she did cite, and I don't know, maybe you know if this is true or not, she did cite that she had been working with a couple pharmaceutical companies. Well, and so this is another thing that's tricky because Theranos, the company, had a lot of claims that later on turned out to be false yes. about about yes. people who had people and organizations and institutions that had contracted the company to provide technology to them. And and this is one where I would feel like it was because in our research I read a lot about if you if you keep your technology to yourself and you're the only one using it there's a bunch of regulations and a bunch of testing and a bunch of loopholes you can go through and, and kind of skip all this stuff, it's not as as FDA regulated until you give it to other companies. Mm-hmm. So if she was actually working with, let's say, Pfizer or something, it would have to be meeting FDA approval yes. if they were on the up and up. Well, and, and this also gets to what would be like a throughput for this story is that one of the reasons why the technology wasn't going through these these various certification and uh, approval processes is because it just wasn't ready. And so the company would use the the argument that they were protecting trade secrets mm-hmm. so that someone else wouldn't come up and steal the technology and, and undercut the company. But on the flip side, what they were doing was stalling for time so that yeah. they could hopefully get to the point where the technology worked as they wanted it to. And so there was a lot of, like, song and dance going on. Yeah, but it didn't take much time for there to be early warning signs, right? Yeah, no, that's the weird thing. So so 2003 is when the company's founded. Most of the general public wouldn't have heard about this company until 2013. Yeah, I didn't. But in between then, stuff was already going down. In 2006, Henry Mosley, who had served as the initial chief financial officer for the company, was fired. And reportedly, the reason for his firing according to other employees, was that he had brought up concerns about the technology's reliability, saying that these tests aren't reliable, our error rates are way too high, they're not working properly enough for us to push this forward and 
we might be misrepresenting the company to our investors, saying we're much further along than we really are. And he thought that there was a, a real honesty problem at the company. Turns out he was wicked right. Yeah, but that didn't stop them because in 2007, they really started work on the Edison. This is the device that they were eventually saying could run over 200 tests on a pinprick of blood. Yeah, they would call it, by that point, they called it the mini lab. But again, according to the documentary, uh, internally, they just refer to it as Edison 4.0. So the Edison is, it looks kind of like a printer. Like if you look at the, or sort of a combination between a printer and maybe a desktop computer, like the old tower-based desktop Mm -hmm. computers. And it has a tray that comes out. That's where you put in the... The floppy uh, disk. No, sorry, the CD. You put it in the cartridge (laughs) that contains a little container of blood. They called it a nanotainer. Um, which, this, which even that wasn't at first. First, they said you could just take like a lancet and get like a drop of blood and do that. And they had to upgrade to a nanotainer. Yeah. It had a, f- a few drops of blood in yeah, it. Yeah. It actually has a little, uh, little micro channels in it that would draw the blood into a, a container. And then you would put that in the cartridge, put the cartridge in the machine. It would do its magic, and then you would supposedly be able to run up to 200 different diagnostic tests on that sample eventually. Like, that wasn't what they were claiming initially, but it's what it got up to. Yeah. And there were some people in the medical industry, uh, more than a few, who expressed skepticism about whether or not such a thing would even be possible. Yeah, I mean, people people who didn't know much about it, like doctors and scientists. Yeah, they were just like, uh, pretty sure that would be really hard to do because they talked about, again, the very strict standards you had to follow to well, conduct diagnostic tests and, and questioning whether you could even do that automatically. I don't remember the exact details of that. I, I know that sometimes blood draws are diluted some sure. for testing, But to dilute the amount of blood in a nanotainer really messed up results. Yeah. And as it turned out, uh, as we'll get into it, (laughs) they started to dilute blood samples, not for the Edison, but because they wanted to run those samples through other machines made by other companies, like existing diagnostic machines. They Mm -hmm. bought existing diagnostic machines from companies like Siemens And they would take the blood sample, dilute it so that they could run it through these other diagnostic machines because they needed more more specimen than than a nanotainer could provide. But diluting your sample also— That doesn't give you more specimen. Right. That puts water or saline or whatever. these these devices weren't designed to analyze diluted specimens. Mm -hmm. They were designed to— to to measure like larger quantities of blood. So that was bringing even the results using other companies' machinery, that was bringing those results into doubt. But the company wasn't even admitting that they were doing that. No, and we're getting ahead again. I'm sorry. It's fine. It's (laughs) fine. So in 2010, a single investor contributed $45 million to the company, which uh, was pretty nice. In 2014, uh, at this point, there were some troubling signs that were starting to emerge. The FDA had started an investigation back in 2012. Despite all that, Holmes and her team were able to raise another $400 million. This is what gave them that $9 billion valuation. Yeah, and Holmes owned 50% of the company, so that made her a billionaire, at least on paper. Yeah, the the youngest woman to be... A self-made billionaire. Yeah. Yeah, so she she became the youngest female... I hate I hate that they use the term female. Yeah. But the youngest female self-made billionaire. And then 
as I said before, she had met Sonny Balwani in those Mandarin classes in mm-hmm. 2002. He joined the company in 2009. Now, his background was in software engineering and development, not in medicine. He had no medical background, but he came in, he gave a personal loan with no interest, according to Balwani, to the company to try and help it succeed. And he also was frequently cited as one of the reasons why employees felt really intimidated at the company. Mm-hmm. Holmes and Balwani together, I think Reign of Terror might be an exaggeration, but only a little bit. I mean, I wasn't there, but it certainly sounds like it. At some point, they also had a romantic relationship. Yes. Uh, not anymore, according no. to reports. But I want to say... This is at the same time that Holmes says that she never dates. Yes. She never dates because she, she doesn't— She's married want, to her job. She's married to her job. She doesn't watch TV. She doesn't do social media. She just does her job. She works seven days a week because she's so driven and so dedicated. And she lives a short drive away from the office so that she's never far away. Some of this was true. But I guess I guess Sunny Balwani was a part of the job. Maybe. Maybe that was her reasoning behind it. I don't know. That's that's speculation on my part. But right around that time, the company starts to pursue partnerships with potentially lucrative partners, talking about companies like Safeway and Walgreens, with the idea being that if they could establish a foothold with these companies, they could build out a testing center or wellness center in these different, like Safeway's a, a chain of grocery stores, yeah. Walgreens a chain of, of drugstores, pharmacies. So if you could build out those centers and eventually put an Edison or later on a mini lab into those facilities, then you've got this incredible reach. So that was the the goal, but they had to try and get those partnerships first. Safeway was interested. They said, sure, let's let's look into this. They were even looking to build out clinics in 800 of the supermarkets. They estimated the cost was going to be $350 million to make that change. But they kept running into problems because Theranos was... Was missing deadlines. Yeah, they were missing deadlines. And Walgreens said the same thing, that they constantly were skipping deadlines. Uh, But Walgreens did go a little further. They built wellness centers in several of their locations in Arizona to act as kind of a beta test for this program. And so they even hired people to train Walgreens staff on how to do blood draws. Originally, it was just going to be the pinpricks. Later on, they would do actual vial blood draws. Which raised some questions. Oh, yeah. No, people were saying like, but I thought your technology could do this on a pinprick. And they said, oh, well, not for the test you ordered. Yeah. And I'll say there were certain people in Walgreens who were saying this is not a good idea. Yeah. This this is unverified technology. We shouldn't do this. But the idea was just too alluring. Yeah. The idea was that this would potentially be an enormous moneymaker for the company. And so despite the warning signs, they went ahead. And 2013, like we said, was when the company first really became known to the public. And, you know, for the first decade, they had really been focusing on trying to get the technology to work. And this this kind of falls into a, a philosophy that is frequently used in Silicon Valley and in business in general. That's Mm -hmm. the fake it until you make it philosophy. So the idea of fake it until you make it is that you've got this grand idea, but you can't achieve the idea yet because you you don't have the assets. Maybe you don't have the money. Maybe you don't have the expertise yet, but you Mm -hmm. have this idea and you know it's, or at least you're pretty sure it's achievable if you just get the The people and money that you need. 
So you fake it so that you can get that investment. When you get the investment, then you pour that into actually trying to do the thing that you've already claimed you can do, and hopefully you do it. But here's the thing. When you're talking about technology, like a new software program or even something like Airbnb, which was another unicorn company we've talked about in a previous episode, if you don't make it, the consequences, I mean, for people your People lose money, but— Yeah, people lose money. For your investors, they're still not good. But when you're talking about the healthcare industry, that just seems irresponsible to No, me. criminally irresponsible. Yeah. yeah. As it turns out, other yes. people thought yes. so too. <laughs> um, so Holmes is able to really get a huge boost because the press picks up the story about the company. And this is where companies or, or magazines like, like Fortune or Forbes hear about her and they start running incredible profiles about her and her mission and the company. Yeah. And this makes her status skyrocket. And they do they do mention in the articles, although it's usually just a very small amount of a very large article, having read many of them. Yeah. That she's pretty vague. Yeah, about how the technology works or works. the science. Yes. Yeah. So they 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 all seem to say she's incredibly passionate that she has deep sincerity, and that she ho- truly holds the beliefs that she attests to. And maybe she did or does. But that she was very light on the details. Some of the articles kind of shrug it off, thinking, well, it's because, again, she's protecting corporate secrets, and she doesn't want to give too much away, and they give her a pass on that. So I- I'm going to put on my geek hat here. Yeah. Briefly. Recently, I watched Ant-Man and Wasp, Mm -hmm. and when they try to explain anything quantum, they just put quantum in front of everything. Yeah. Like, there's a quantum entanglement that needs quantum healing particles for a quantum jump through quantum space-time. You gotta eat your quantum Cheerios. When Holmes did reach out and vaguely explain her technology, reading her quotes about, it's a chemical test that does a chemical reaction when you put it on chemical paper with chemical, and that's not exactly what she said, But it seemed very much the same way. She was just putting chemical in front of everything to sell it. Yeah. She even was invited to come out and do a TED Talk. And the TED Talks are still online. You can can find them not on the TED Talk website. It's mysteriously (laughs) absent there. But, you know, and to be fair, like, I don't want to throw them under the bus. Lots of journalists were taken in by Holmes. And, in fact, in the HBO documentary, one of them, the guy who wrote for Fortune, he gets choked up because he he admits that he played a role in promoting her work and her company. And you can tell he legitimately is torn up about it because he feels he was totally taken in mm-hmm. and that he potentially could have caused a great deal of harm. So this is a tough thing. It, I mean, it's tough for the people working at Theranos as well. You know, engineers and scientists are there. They want to make this work too. Yeah, no, they, they, they're sincerely trying to make the technology work. They're in the lab. They're, they're running tests. They're trying to refine the technology. Reportedly, the Edison that they were working with initially was based off a glue dispensing robot. Interesting. So they took a glue dispensing robot and then tweaked it to be this thing. They were given very strict parameters of how big the device was supposed to be. This is something that Balwani and Holmes both felt very strongly about. They said, well, in order for this to be the revolutionary product we're promising, it has to be in this certain form factor. And a lot of the engineers said, 
for the amount of work you want this thing to do, that is impossible. We need we need yeah. more space. We just it's impossible for what you and there's no no no. It has to be this, or else we're not delivering upon what we're telling people. And so the engineers and the scientists felt like they were kind of hamstrung that yeah. they were working in within constraints that were impossible. They were, and in the meantime, this is this is around the time that the, they're doing these other tests with these other machines and diluting the samples. To say that the results were inaccurate is mild because people were being sent to the ER under dire emergency because their readings were saying that, like, the potassium in their blood was way too high and they were on the brink of death. Yeah, and and it would turn out that if you ran those same blood tests through one of the established diagnostic clinics, those readings were completely yeah. false. Like, everything was normal. It was, yeah. So... Uh, one thing that did come out in favor for the company in 2015 before the House of Cards would start to really tumble was the FDA actually approved one of Theranos' uh, tests for detecting herpes simplex virus 1. But that was the one medical test mm-hmm. that the FDA approved. None of the other 200 or so were approved, just one. And, you know, maybe that would have been enough if they had started more modestly. Yeah, if they hadn't already been promising the moon. Uh, they did have an enormous party in celebration of this announcement. There, That's also featured in the documentary. Yeah. You get to see uh, Elizabeth Holmes jumping in a bouncy house and coming out to uh, MC Hammers, you can't touch this. Turns out, you could. not entirely true. But that... That celebration was short-lived. Yep. It would end up really being curtailed in October 2015. That's when the Wall Street Journal reporter John Kerryrew published that very damning article about the company, saying that not only were the devices not working, but that the company had been relying upon these other diagnostic machines from other companies to run tests and still were pulling up inaccurate results. And that brings us to the real brink. But we'll talk about that after this brief break. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. All right, so the Wall Street Journal piece comes out. And I, can, I think in retrospect, we can say this is the beginning of the end. It would take yeah. a few years for the company to die. Longer than you'd expect. Yeah. Well, for one thing, it really it speaks to Holmes's ability to calm people even in the face of incredible evidence of at least mistakes, if not yes. direct misrepresentation. Employees were coming forward with other really disturbing 
uh, allegations saying that they were very closely monitored. There were suspicions that Balwani was keeping a record of everyone's use of their key card whenever they were going in and out of the building. Yeah, and Holmes had her own security detail and... Their windows are made of bulletproof glass. Well, at least in her office. In her office. Yeah. And even employee emails were being monitored. Uh, People would email each other thinking that they were having essentially a private conversation. And then they would get pulled into meetings to answer for certain things. Like if they were saying, oh, the results for this aren't aren't right. We're not ready to go. And then they get pulled into a meeting. They're like, I never said that to anybody. I sent it to an email to someone else. I know they didn't talk, which means... The bosses are reading our emails. Uh, Same thing was true with the Wall Street Journal report. Bosses were able to go through the report and identify points of data that could have only come from specific employees based upon their emails. And employees were coming out saying, we are lying about the equipment we're using to analyze these blood samples, which is illegal. Yeah. Again, it's illegal. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is really a shell game that is being played. Whenever any investors were coming to the company or any people who were investigating the company, they would be taken on tours. They would sometimes be invited to actually submit a blood sample. This is how crazy this got. Oof. They would submit a blood sample. It would appear that they would have the blood sample put into one of these mini labs and it would take time to run the tests. It wasn't like it was instantaneous. No, so they said, hours or so. Yeah. So they're like, well, while we're waiting, how about we go on a tour? And they would take them on a tour of the facility. Meanwhile, an engineer would rush into the room, take the sample, run it to the lab where they had the other testing equipment from the other companies, dilute the sample, run it through the tests, get the results, and come back and claim that those were the results from the machine that they had seen their blood sample go into. Pretty awful stuff. Very sketch. So, yeah, very scary stuff. Also, there was some tragedies that happened. There's one incredibly tragic story. Ian Gibbons was hired as a scientist. He actually became chief scientist for the company. And he was one of the people who was worried that the the testing equipment was not nearly accurate enough or reliable enough. And he raised some concerns about it and got fired as a result Then he got rehired at the company, but at a much lower position. That's got to stink in and of itself. Yeah, essentially, from what I read, he was in charge of reviewing resumes. But why would he even go back? Because he he truly believed in the mission, and he wanted to see the mission come true. He just felt that they were not nearly as far along as how Holmes was presenting the company. Mm. So he goes back. And then he is subpoenaed to appear in a patent lawsuit, and he's subpoenaed on the behalf of the other party, not the company. Then he's terrified. He's terrified, well, if I testify against the company, if I speak what I truly believe, the company is going to do horrible things. It's going to fire me. I'm going to be in trouble. If I don't, then I'm perjuring myself. His wife said that this actually contributed to anxiety, stress, and depression, and ultimately he attempted suicide. Uh, He he did not kill himself, but the injuries he sustained as a result of it did, in fact, prove fatal, and he died a week later. That is very upsetting, and it's very sad. The cherry on top is that the company only reached out to his wife to say, don't talk about the company. Yeah, and and hand over any company property that happens to be at your house. It just makes me... (sighs) It makes me feel sick. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it is inhuman. Like, think about this company is positioning itself as being this altruistic 
company that has the mission of helping people. Meanwhile, you have this happen. Like those two stories are so out of alignment. Like they couldn't be more diametrically opposed, right? And and I could maybe understand if it was a matter of life and death, this company was working on something super top secret for real, real, saying you need to give us back anything, but also maybe sending like a condolence card or doing something for the widow. Like setting up a, a, a trust or charity or something you know, in in his name. But yeah, it was horrible. They went on and hired uh, David Boyce, who is a famous attorney. He's been in lots of very, very high-profile cases, Mm -hmm. who also took a seat on the board. And according to several ex-employees, as well as journalists, Boyce and his legal team regularly engaged in intimidation tactics to try and stop any bad press getting out about the company. But that didn't work. No, no, it was... One of those things where enough people were truly concerned with how things were going that the dam had already broken. Mm -hmm. So there was no stopping the flood at this point. Holmes kept trying to spin things and to to say like, oh, well, we've got – We've still got more progress to make, but we're doing really well. By the end of the year, we're going to be doing all 200 of those tests we've talked about. Like, essentially still saying that they were going to make good on the promises they had made. But now she's lost credibility. She has, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, also known as CMS, proposed banning homes from owning or operating a clinical lab for two years. They would eventually actually enact that. Uh, The company's lab in Newark, California, was deemed to cause, quote, immediate jeopardy to patient health and safety, end quote, by CMS. And Walgreens finally cut their ties. Yep. Theranos. Yeah, Safeway had already kind of cut it, but that had sort of, it almost was like unofficial fizzling out just because, again, the company had been missing so many deadlines. CMS, the Federal Prosecutors, and the Security Exchange Commission, or SEC, all started to investigate the company and— the company was burning through its investment money mm-hmm. and it's for multiple reasons. One, it was still trying to get the technology working. Two, they had purchased an, or at least leased an incredible state-of-the-art kind of facility. And, and Three Homes, despite all this, was not cutting back on her lifestyle yeah, spending. which was being supported by the company. company yeah. And also, on top of that, the company was spending lots of money in settlements. Yeah. They were refunding all the patients in Arizona who had been using the clinical diagnostics there. They were settling with various companies. So a lot of money was pouring out of the company. And obviously, at this stage, where the credibility of the company is pretty much shot, they are not doing well in trying to replace that with new investors. You know, there was no other no. place for this money to come from. They did get a loan at some point. Yeah, but it was small in the sense that, like, the money going out was way greater than the money coming in. Yeah, And so... As the SEC investigation was ramping up, Holmes was essentially forced to step down as CEO of the company. By that time, Balwani had already been, either he had resigned or had been fired as president, depends upon which story you believe. Mm -hmm. And Holmes was forced to return her shares of stock in the company. And also she was forced as part of a settlement to agree to not serve as an officer or director of any public company for 10 years. Now that's public. She could still lead a private company. Yeah, but in June of 2018, both she and Balwani got charged with multiple counts of wire fraud and conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, And they're still awaiting trial. As we record this podcast. Yeah, because just not serving as director for a public company for 10 years 
seems a mighty small consequence for putting people's lives in danger. Right. And misleading investors. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of blame to go around here. We can lay a lot of blame on Holmes and Balwani, and I, I believe they both deserve a lot of mm-hmm. it. But we can also lay a lot of blame on investors. We can lay a lot of blame on companies like Walgreens and Safeway yeah. that were very credulous and, to just believe this. And even on uh, reporters who maybe weren't as thorough in their fact-checking as they should have been because the idea was so appealing. Yeah. And and part of this, again, is that, one, the idea was so compelling because it, it appeals to our emotional need to see others have less suffering, right? Yes. So there's that. It, it appeals to our sense of compassion. It also appeals to our sense of ingenuity. Like, we we have this kind of feeling like technology can solve every problem, right? That's not necessarily true. No. <laughs> but we have that deep belief that same thing is true with autonomous cars, right? That we just believe that the technology is sophisticated enough to accomplish that goal. But that's without us having a full understanding of how complex a task we're actually asking technology to complete. Yeah. So these things like really all combine together to make it a dangerous moment, a dangerous thing that is easy for people to buy into. Yeah. I I think it's important to note that while it was June of 2018 when these counts were were put on Holmes and Balwani, the company didn't close until late 2018. Yeah. So at that point, the company had ousted its CEO and president, Mm -hmm. and it had been banned from doing any blood testing for two years, which is, when you think about it, that's what the company did. It wasn't doing it well, but that's what it did. So you're saying... The one thing that you do, you can't do for two years. I mean, even if you had some engineers who are like, I still really believe we can make this work. I want to try to get this technology right. You can't test it now. Yeah. You can't You can't test your technology anymore. Yeah. So this, I mean, that was the end of the company. There just wasn't yeah. any way for it to, to continue unless it had pivoted by creating a totally different technology that didn't rely on blood tests, uh, which would have been a huge request for a company that had banked everything on this idea. It was pretty much impossible. So, yeah, we've we've kind of touched on the lessons we're talking yeah. about here, like the idea that you got to use critical thinking when you mm. are presented an opportunity. You have to resist FOMO, yeah. the fear, <laughs> fear of, of missing, missing out. out. You know, there, that's a big part of investment in Silicon Valley, right? Because you hear about these stories of companies that just hit the stratosphere within the first couple of years of its existence. And you think, man, if I had gotten on the ground floor of Google, I'd be a billionaire. If I had bought a Bitcoin back when they were super cheap. Exactly, yeah. If I had, you know, back when they were, you know, fractions of a penny per Bitcoin, I could be a millionaire today. And so you hear enough of those stories and then you think, oh, this is the opportunity. This is it. This is my Bitcoin here. I just got to put some money into this and I'm going to be set for life. It's just going to be yachts and Yahtzee. I I have weird ideas of what it's like to be rich. Yachts and Yahtzee sounds wonderful to me. It also sounds like it could be a spinoff of Dungeons and Dragons. That's all we have time for today, guys. I got to go write up this new board game RPG thing. TM, 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 (laughs) as the McElroy brothers would say. Yeah, so uh, this was, again, a fascinating story. And as we said before, there's so many articles. There's so many podcasts, documentaries. There's There's no shortage of material about this. We didn't really go into the optics of Elizabeth Holmes. We didn't even touch on her her uniform of the mock turtleneck. Some of the more bizarre personal things that came out at the end. Oh, like like her wolf. Yeah, her husky wolf. Yeah. 
Yeah, there there were other elements of the story that are interesting. If you are interested in this story, seek these other podcasts, documentaries, and articles, books out because there's no shortage of material, yeah. and we've only scraped the surface. You know, and, and and be aware, both both Jonathan and I faced some amount of anxiety researching this because it is such a like well, a heart wrenching topic. And it may very well be that this particular approach that the company was really focusing on isn't practical. But that doesn't mean someone won't come up with an alternative in the future that... It could spark a better idea. Yeah. So here's hoping that that happens. Ariel, if people want to reach out to us and give us suggestions, kind of like the one we had today, where can they do that? Well, they can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show or they can go to our website, thebrinkpodcast.show. And until next time, I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Kasten. The Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.